Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we explore, we describe and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies of the technologies of the visual workplace that help us let the workplace speak. And our outcomes are splendid. We get tremendous informational transparency, information, vital information that we pull when and as we need it, dramatic improvements in quality, productivity, on-time delivery, cultural alignment, a robust, spirited, and engaged workforce on all levels of the enterprise, not just value-add associates, but everyone, you too. So welcome. Welcome, and you can find us on visualworkplace.com for free articles and podcasts for my books and the products and services that we deliver on site as we help companies convert to a workplace that speaks. If you want more information about us and about arranging for us to work with you at your company, just email us at radio at visualworkplace.com or email us directly from our website, visualworkplace.com. We are happy to help. Welcome, 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 and thank you for coming back. We are going to move into the next parts of our discussion about the building blocks of visual thinking. As you know, this is part of the methodology the methodology that we call Work That Makes Sense, which is specifically for operator-led visuality. And we've been marching through that methodology by marching through my book, which is called Work That Makes Sense. If you've joined us before, you'll know that I will read from the book and then make comment so that we're actually going through exactly the same methodology that we teach operators on their way to redefining, re-engineering their own work area. If you remember the last time we spoke, and on my last show, I had mentioned at the beginning that I was motivated to write this book because many of the, actually the trainers and consultants in the field of 5S had come to me and said, can you give us 5S without the word 5S? Can you give us the visual part of the development that you have done from the Japanese approach to 5S, can you give us that, but without using the word 5S because our clients don't like it, because 5S has become a kind of a, well, not a curse word, but a bad word. It had a bad reputation. It caused trouble, and I knew what they meant. I knew that when the so-called Japanese miracle had come to our shores, that a lot of us just swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, thinking that we had to do it that way or we were doing it the wrong way. We had to do it the Japanese way. But the Japanese had never used 5S for employee empowerment or creativity or creating teams. It was simply, if you will, standard work about keeping the workplace clean and neat. They used other mechanisms. They used kata, they used kaizen, not a kaizen blitz, but an actual gradual incremental kaizen. They used what is still called quality circles in many Japanese companies to build connectivity between operators and between operators and management staff and to trigger creativity and thinking and contribution and continuous improvement. 5S was not part of that array. But it came to us when we didn't understand a lot of things. And one of the things we didn't understand was how important it is to give operators, to give hourly employees a legitimate, authentic role in what is called thinking. 
thinking and the contributions that follow inventiveness. So I said yes. It was started with a wonderful gentleman named Todd Allen, and then I checked it out and I I asked other of the trainers and practitioners in my field, I said, Is, are you running into the same thing? Is this truly uh, an opening to talk about visuality more fully for operators? And they said, absolutely, yes. And I wrote the book. And then out of the book, we did many, many conversions, visual conversions with this highly amplified 5S that was no longer called 5S. And we also... Uh, trained a lot of other trainers in the methodology, and now we have an online system that I have fully narrated and uh, have extended the power of this work that makes sense even further. It's really quite extraordinary, if I do say so myself. It's been a joy to work on. And the book came out in 2015. I began the work on the different approach about 2007, and that paralleled the writing of the book. So I'm going to continue. So one more thing about this transition from 5S to work that makes sense. You do have to make your work area, your work environment clean. And you do have to make it safe. And you do have to get get rid of the junk. But before you lay down what you call lines and I call borders, you really have to find the logic of the flow. And we ask our operators to do that. We ask our operators to approach the challenges of their work area with a simplified metric that is called motion, which I'll be talking about very soon. It's one of the building blocks, moving without working. And we compare that moving without working with work itself. And what we've discovered is that the motion is triggered largely in 99.99% of the cases by missing information in the workplace. This is the struggle that operators have. They come to work to be heroes. They come to work to work. They want to do a full day's pay. They don't want to cut corners. They want to do excellent work. But the information that they need is simply not available. It is the pre-visual workplace. And so... In engaging in that in this way with operators, the operators make a tremendous contribution. They completely command, control, engineer, refine, develop, and master the physical work environment that is their work area. They will need your help to make linkages between areas and between departments. They will need your help but they will be able to take on the rest of it. And they do so through the methodology called work that makes sense. They own it. They master it. And to a very, very great extent, I would say they love it. They love it. This is an area of self-expression and of demand, which is the kind of demand that you feel when your outcome is excellence when you are driven by a vision of excellence and you want to explore it. Yesterday, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, in our last show, not yesterday, in our last show, we were working on building block two standards. And I had mapped you through the two types of standards, technical standards, which are your dimensions and your values, and procedural standards, which are your SOPs, your methods. Technical standards are the what, what needs to be done, what are the specs, and procedural standards are how, how do we achieve them. And I was just at the point of illustrating what a procedural standard is by talking to you about the wiring harnesses that are used in automobiles and trucks and buses, in vehicles, and a challenge that a group of operators were facing with creating these technical harnesses, but then they would get damaged 
when they were stored as whip. And they're stored on poles because these wiring harnesses can be 15, 20 feet in length. They're sort of like a capillary system in our body. The terminal endings, which are delicate, would become damaged and therefore unusable if they banged on the ground. And it was a very simple SOP, a very simple standard operating procedure. The instruction was, don't let them bang on the ground. Hang them so that when they're on these poles, which will hold them until they're needed for the next process, make sure that they don't touch the ground. It's easy to say that, and you would think it would be easy to do it, but in fact, there was a lot of failure, and the operators tried to figure out what to do. This happened to be in the first Packard Electric plant. It was the first um, Maquiladora plant in Mexico, this particular example, when Packard Electric, before it became Delphi. It was a really thrill to be there. And it was a thrill to see the creativity of operators. And what they decided to do, their solution was simple and it was visual. They simply taped, they put red tape on the pole, 10 inches above the floor. And when you put the harness in place, when you stored it on these kind of racks, they were like a clothesline but made out of metal, you would simply make sure that the terminal endings were above the red tape. That's all. The red tape was a simple, is a very simple visual device that indicated a limit. It is technically a visual control since it is actually trying to limit our behavior, not just show our behavior or tell what our behavior should be, but actually limit it, control it. And it worked like a charm. You could see if you were hanging it too low, you would adjust it so that it was at or above the red tape line, and that was it. That was, And that is an excellent example, so simple, of a visual standard of how do you get people, how do you get people to do the right thing. The what of the right thing is the technical standard, but the how, how do you execute that value, that dimension, is the procedural standard. And in visuality, we make them visual. That means we don't just make the procedure visual on a flat piece of paper, but we embed the elements of that procedure into the living landscape of work as visual devices. That is a theme. We are not, in talking about the building blocks, we are not in the arena of methodology. The methodology is work that makes sense. You do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. You walk through the components. I can name that for you. It begins with smart placement, the 14 principles of smart placement. And then you implement the visual wear beginning with borders. And there are 18 types of borders. And then addresses and ID labels. And then you do mini systems. Those are four substantial steps in the methodology. And after that, you can branch out into metrics. You can branch out into visual display boards. You can branch out into visual controls. You can branch out into making your visual devices more powerful. This is what we teach operators. And they move from step to step with increasing mastery and always keeping their eye on motion as the lever, as a kind of assessment yardstick to make sure that they are identifying all of the less than complete solutions. See where the wiggle is, is the way that we put it. So standards are the second building block of visual thinking. Combined your procedural and tech I'm reading now, combined your procedural and technical standards are at the heart of all operational excellence. Of course they are. They cause reliable, repeatable, cost-effective, high-quality work to occur. The absolute bedrock of all outcomes and the core of all profit, profit margins in the enterprise. They create outputs 
your customers want to buy and will buy. And that is exactly what is supposed to happen. A visual workplace is a workplace where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night because of visual devices. That's a visual workplace. Okay, so that's your second building block. Let's move on to building block three. Building block three, the six core questions. Take a closer look at both your technical and your procedural standards, that is, what is supposed to happen, and you'll notice that they are made up of specific sets of answers. When you turn the, a question into an answer, the answers are any one or any combination of only six questions. In visuality, in my methodology, we call these the six core questions. And they are where, what, who, how many, and how, and when. Where, what, when, who, how many, and how. That's it. Answers to these questions represent the details of every standard. They represent all possible answers to the two driving questions you need to know and you need to share. That information will tell you where, what, when, who, how many, and how, or a combination of those. When you answer these six questions visually, translate them into visual devices, the details of both types of standards and questions become visually embedded, available to you and everyone else at a glance as part of the process of work. The workplace speaks. At last, able to tell us where things are, what needs to be done, by when, by whom, or by which machine or tool, in what quantity, and precisely how. The, we make those visual. The visual where, the visual how, the visual when, the visual what, the visual who, the visual how many. Those six core questions. Okay? And that's the way. This is another window for you to understand what visuality does. I'll say again, 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 this is not methodology. In fact, um, a quasi-competitor of ours was trying to do a kind of parallel um, uh, methodology. And he was trying to build the whole methodology around the six core questions. And, and we, you know, we're polite and we said, you know, it, it's actually, this is conceptual. It's not actually an application because you can't go deeper if you use the six core question questions as an organizer for the methodology. It is simply a bucket of concept or insight. So I just want to mention that because it will help you separate visual devices into those six core questions, but it won't help you create create them in an iterative manner, as it were, as a spiral of either going wider and wider at one end of the spiral or deeper and deeper at the inside part of the spiral. I want to mention as a comment, and that was all commentary, by the way, I want to mention as a comment that there is one other question that's very, very important to your company. I want to mention it because it is not mentioned here, but it is of utmost importance, and that is the why. It's kind of six core questions, but one, plus one. Six core questions plus one. And that one question is huge. Why am I doing it? Why am I doing it this way? But also, why are we in business if you will, where are we going together? That is the why. The domain of the why, that core question, is most strongly linked to your leadership. 
if you are simply managing your company, you won't touch that question. But if you have decided to lead, you must touch that question because that is the reason, the rationale, the logic, the explanation of why you are in the rowboat with everyone else in your enterprise. It's a very important leadership question, and it will inform the entire breadth and scope of your company. If the company doesn't have an answer to the why to join them together, then you just have people working in departments trying to deliver the demands that their departments are expected to deliver, and they are not really connected with a larger good, a larger a larger vision of their work together. So it's vitally important. I want to mention it because it is not a part of this book. This book is for operators. The why becomes pertinent and extremely important when we talk about visual leadership, which has a different methodology, a different array of tools and procedures, practices, and principles than operators. Okay. It's not that it's exclusive. It doesn't mean that operators can't embrace that question and answer it for themselves. But it is not their responsibility to embrace or to circle the company in its reason for being. But if it is not done, your operators will definitely not be able to perform to the level of which they are capable So it works very, very beautifully. Let's move on to building block four. Building block four is named information deficits. Which of these building blocks are more important? You know, it's the wrong question. There's a synergy between these building blocks and there's a strength in each of them that makes each of them indispensable to the entire effort of the building blocks of visual thinking. It's the way that I've tested out, can I pull this out without messing things up? And I haven't been able to. Information deficits is so important. Let me read. Building block four, information deficits. Once we understand the six core questions and their importance, our task becomes simple. Find the missing answers to those questions and convert them into visual devices. Another term for these missing answers is information deficits, the fourth building block of visual thinking. Look at a corner in a pre-visual workplace. Look at that corner before it becomes visual and ask the question, how many of the six core questions are answered here? And the answer will be none. The answer may be, oh, look, there's a sign on the wall that says this is a CNC machine. There's a sign on the wall that says, be careful, don't hurt yourself. There's a sign on your wall, on the wall that says, make six every day unless I tell you to do something else. That is not what we mean by visuality. That is still a pre-visual workplace. How many six core questions are answered in a pre-visual workplace? None. There's no where there or what or when or who or how many or how. The area is full of missing answers and therefore full of of information deficits. Okay. It's not enough for an area to be neat and clean and safe it must also be highly visual if it is to function and if motion that is embedded in that area is to be minimized. Missing answers trigger motion. Motion is triggered when answers vital to work are missing, wrong, late, incomplete, unavailable, or simply not known. Another way to say this is, I do not know. I do not share. Information deficits have a powerful negative impact on an area and on a company. First, 
when vital workplace information is repeatedly not available, we become immune to a sense of urgency at work. No one wants to wander around all day chasing down the same teeny tiny bits of information. It's hard to imagine a more degrading experience or one that is more a waste of time. And if these tidbits should be held by a select few individuals who withhold them from the many, insult is added to injury. We call this kind of circumstance information hoarders, and let me go into it a bit. I am reading now. Information deficits can become so habitual that chasing down answers is an expected part of the workday. In such a company, it is not unusual for people to stockpile or withhold information. They become information hoarders. Whether an actual company position such as expediter or simply an understanding that Mr. or Miss so-and-so is the go-to person, the one in the know, information hoarders erode the work culture of the enterprise. They represent an unofficial so-called system, a tribal system that makes the office systems work or work better. No decision is final until that informal network validates it. Over time, information kingdoms develop that employees come to depend on, kind of insider information. Information hoarders are most dangerous when vital information is scarce or wrong or irrelevant, incomplete, unreliable, late, or just plain not available. Such an organization routinely tells lies to itself and to others, and as a result, people turn to the information hoarders in an attempt to learn the truth. What's really happening? What's really going on? What's really required? What's really in the forecast? Being a single trustee of the truth is simply too much power for any single group or person to hold. However, well-meaning their intentions are, and that gets distorted too, I will add as comment. Motivation becomes questionable when you have that much power. And the rest of us are disempowered. Information hoarders are always a sign of trouble in the enterprise, but they are not the trouble itself. The trouble itself is the existence of information deficits because it is those that destroy our fundamental need to trust the place where we work. Faced with chronic information deficits, we may continue to attempt to create value for our customers, but that attempt will come up will come at a very high price and with little promise of success. So this is a kind of niche boutique part my commentary is, of the enterprise, the pre-visual enterprise. It is a sign of trouble. Information hoarders are definitely part of the assessment landscape in a pre-visual workplace. And it's quite hidden from an outsider. You have to kind of hang around a while to find out who the go-to person is. The, The damning I continue to to uh, read. The damage done to the bottom line through missing information is disastrous and huge. A company's performance measures tell the story, its KPIs. From ordering errors, defects, rework scrap, and the chronic late deliveries these trigger, to the number of machine repair, long changeover times, material handling mistakes, accidents, long cycle and manufacturing lead time, error-laden sales reports and collection activities, information deficits hurt the entire business. Their power is in their absence, the absence of answers. Like holes torn in a fishing net, something of value escapes with every missing answer. These rips may start small, so small that we don't notice the tiniest escaping fish. Over time, the holes get bigger, 
the information deficits multiply. Not only does the loss of so many small fish add up, but now the big fish escape as well. I want to stop for a moment and dwell on a point that is of vital, vital interest and significance. This idea that with information deficits, their power, their negative power, is in their absence, the absence of answers. What is interesting about information deficits is because they're not there, they are a powerful enemy. How do you combat the absence of a thing whose absence creates so much trouble in the organization, so much dysfunction? It's not there. Information deficits are not there. Therefore, the enemy is invisible. And the world of improvement, of organizational change, has not addressed this and has not solved it, not until visuality has come along. Because you can't solve the absence of a quantum Wrap your mind around that. What we're talking about, and we'll be talking about this in some detail in a moment when we talk about motion. Motion is the footprint of missing answers, but it is not the answer. It is not the phenomenon itself. It just tells you there is a deficit in your production operational approach, and you have to find it first, track it, solve it. That's the challenge. And it's one of the reasons why the methodologies that I've developed work so well. It's because it recognizes that the enemy is strongest when it is not there. And therefore, we shift over to creating scientists of motion across the organization. And I think probably most powerfully on the value-add level. Going back. Learning to see what to do about this. The first goal in minimizing and even eliminating this sorry state of affairs is to learn to see what is not there. Those holes in the fishing net, those information deficits. But that's a hard assignment when chasing down missing answers has become a routine part of the workday, a way of life in some companies. We barely notice these chronic abnormalities and instead write them off as business as usual. The result is this. When our work area overflows with information deficits, we simply get busier and busier and try harder and harder. We hardly have time to notice that we don't get much work done. Information deficits are the fourth building block of visual thinking. And I'll tie some of those pieces together a bit more in a moment. Let's move on to building block five, which is motion. Which is more important? Boy, it's the wrong question. Which of these building blocks is more important? It's the wrong question because let us now enter into motion. See how important it is related to information deficits. And how important, for example, I-driven, the first building block is to engendering an interest, a commitment to finding those information deficits through the motion that we are able to track. So, building block five, motion. Motion is defined as moving without working. Motion comes in a thousand familiar and unfamiliar forms and disguises. Here's a sample. Wandering, wondering, searching, guessing, checking, checking again, handling, handling again, waiting. Sometimes when motion gets really thick, the only thing you can do is stop. That makes stopping, doing nothing, yet another form of motion. But the most common and dangerous forms of motion are connected with questions. A familiar topic already. 
asking, answering questions, interrupting to ask the question, being interrupted to answer the question, waiting for answers. Questions have a peculiar multiplier effect that makes them very dangerous. Dangerous. Here's what happens. When you interrupt someone to ask a question, no matter how urgent or genuine, or when someone interrupts you to ask a question, not one person but two people are automatically in motion, you and the other person. The motion caused by questions is like a contagious, a contagious, contagious, I'll get this word right, contagious disease. You start by asking one person a question, and if he or she does not know the answer, then she or he asks a second person, and if that second person doesn't know the answer to your question, chances are he or she will say, hey, give me a minute, and ask a third person and so on, until a whole roomful of people can become contaminated, until they are all in motion. I call it motion sickness. <laughs> Should I go on? Did you know that research shows that it takes a single person, like you or me, 6 to 15 minutes to get back to the task at hand after an interruption? In other words, I'm going to comment on this. When we're interrupted and we want to get back to work, it will take us 6 to 15 minutes to get back not just to the task, but to the level of concentration and focus that existed before the interruption. Hmm? Before the interruption. That means that the multiplier effect is sucking up all the air in the room. The multiplier effect of motion is sucking up all the extra time and creating the pressure of getting work done because there's simply not enough time for it. How many times a day do you interrupt someone to ask for an answer? How many times a day does someone interrupt you to ask for an answer? What would it be like if those answers were already embedded as visual devices and visual mini-systems into the living landscape of work so that people could simply pull those answers to them? Precise, accurate, timely, complete answers because they have made it so through their visual inventions. What would happen is the flow of work. What would happen is what my great friend, a machine operator at Denison Hydraulics, Rick L. said to me, he said, what happens is you do the dance of work. You do the dance of work. It's all choreographed. You follow the steps. You flow. And when he said that, there were stars in his eyes. Because he had created that kind of environment in his own work cell. And he knew what it was like to simply feel the sense of mastery over his work as his breath flowed and as the work flowed through him. Outstanding performance and a relaxed and peaceful operator. He said, you know, Gwendolyn, everyone is bidding for my work area. He worked in a union plant in Ohio. He said, everybody wants to be assigned to my work cell. They call it the no thinking cell because when they come to my cell, I work there on first shift, but second and third shift, they don't have to think. They don't have to think because the workplace is always talking to them. They don't, they don't have to clutter their minds with questions or with lack of confidence, or any kind of uneasiness. They just dance. It's the no-thinking cell. This is not a fiction. This is actually so. That is why I say that motion is the footprint of the enemy. It is the footprint, and you can see that footprint in every corner of the pre-visual workplace. 
it eats away at value. Okay? I want to mention as an aside, this is another inset, why I use the term motion instead of what perhaps you use, muda, waste, or non-value-adding activity. So I I write this explanation because I think it's important uh, to understand that motion is pretty much a unique term. It was invented by Ono. He got, Taichi Ono got really annoyed. This is the story right out of Shingo's mouth to me. And Shigeo Shingo said through the interpreter that Ono-san used to become very upset when he saw the machine working and the man not working. And that's what he called motion. It came out of his irritation. Taichi Ono was very irritable. So was uh, Shigeo Shingo. These men were not the whole inner, inner donut. They were very substantial thinkers and dissatisfied pretty much all the time. That was part of their brilliance. So I want to, I'll read you this inset. The definition of motion I use throughout this book is the same as Toyota uses in its seven deadly waste. Motion moving without working. In visuality, however, we use motion to define the problems triggered by the condition, triggered by information deficits and the unintentional placement of function. While you may think that the term muda, waste, or non-value-adding activity are used to mean the same thing, I do not use them interchangeably. Here's why. First, non-value-adding activity. Many years ago, I noticed that the term non-value-adding activity caused heartache for people whose jobs were, in fact, non-value-adding. Inspectors, expediters, rework operators, material handlers, supervisors, managers, to name a few. Far too often when these fine individuals heard me call their jobs non-value-adding, they concluded that they, as people, were non-value-adding. Nothing could be further from the truth. But when I saw how my words affected them, I decided not to describe people's jobs that way anymore. Waste, why I don't use that word. Waste is a general term. Motion is specific. Motion is always tied to a specific behavior. In most cases, unanswered core questions and almost always tied to a specific person, me or you. It is my feet that carry me all over the area trying to get the answer to a question. Where are my pliers? I own that question. I own that motion. Why don't I use muda? Muda means waste in Japanese. I prefer to use a word that doesn't need translation and, as mentioned, has a more exact meaning. So I share that with you as well. And also in our discussion about motion, we go out of our way to make clear what motion is not. We make clear that you are not in motion if you're taking a break. You are not in motion if you are at lunch or chatting with a friend. You are not at motion if you are calling home or in a restroom. Things like that. My intention is not to turn you into some tireless robot, the energizer bunny who just keeps going and going. None of the above activities are motion. They are instead ways that we maintain our humanity and our connectivity at work. This is our sense of community and safety and personal comfort. So don't worry about engaging in those activities. They are part of who we all are as people. They are not the enemy. They are not what is keeping your organization or your department from achieving its goals. We just say that flat out. So, do it or don't do your work. So, this is a a subset about motion. Do it or don't do your work. And I say, notice your motion. You are a step away 
when you notice your motion, you are a step away from detecting the information deficit that caused it, that caused you, for example, to spend 45 minutes looking for your pliers. But maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, if I need my pliers to do my work and I go looking for them, how is that bad? How is that the enemy? How is that motion? I have to have my pliers if I'm going to get my work done. Yes, you are right. You do need to find your pliers so you can do your work, but also recognize that looking for your pliers is not the same as using your pliers. Looking for your pliers is not the same as working. The correct logic runs like this. If I am looking for my pliers in order to be able to do my work, then I am obviously not yet doing that work while I am looking for my pliers. That's all we're saying. There is a name for that, for anything you are forced to do or you cannot do your work. It is a name you already know, motion. Motion is anything you have to do or you could not do your work, but it is not your work. Here are other examples of motion. The activities that associates like you are forced to do just to be able to do your work. Mary is forced to remove a pallet of pumps because they are wrong. She cannot start the job. Victoria has to recheck the spec or risk making the wrong order. Tyrone is forced to count the units again because someone borrowed his order sheet. Nurse Betty has to go to the pharmacy for a new match of medications because the batch number is missing from the first one. Hank has to find his pliers or he can't begin to assemble his unit. Do you see this? So who can blame people for doing this? It's not a question of blaming. It is a question of noticing and noticing and making this distinction between motion and work. And work, by the way, will be the next building block. I want to say one more thing. I want to read one more thing about motion. Another powerful way to bring home the multiplier impact of motion is to realize that time is its shadow. Time is the shadow of motion. Every time we have to chase down an answer, the clock is ticking. All the time we are looking for a missing tool, that same clock is ticking. It is the clock of our life and the life of the company. However much we may want to work, without that answer, without that tool, we cannot. The clock is ticking, though. Either we never get our work started or once started, we never get back to it. Instead, chasing down answers eats up our day. It is a numbing experience and witness to motion's destructive power in the workplace. Motion is the fifth building block of visual thinking, and you will learn other powerful ways to spot it before the end of this chapter. Building block six, work. Have you noticed? While we were just explaining that motion meant moving without working, we neglected to say what working means. While, we'll do that now to complete your understanding of motion. Working means moving and adding value. That is, we move in order to add value, in order to convert material or procedures into products or services our customers want to purchase. Value is not added by accident or by magic. We don't work on the Starship Enterprise, at least not yet. On the Starship Enterprise, when Captain Picard wants a cup of tea, he doesn't have to boil water, nor does his staff. He simply stands in front of the replicator, which is not a vending machine, and says out loud, Earl Grey tea hot. And Earl Grey tea, piping hot, instantly materializes from the inside out, along with an exquisite Wedgwood teacup and saucer to hold it. Q, 
that's somebody's name, Q, a rather advanced ET in Picard's world, doesn't even need to say cup of tea when he wants, when he merely thinks it. No, our world isn't like that, not yet. In our world, if we want a cup of tea or an F-16 fighter jet, we must move in order to create it. We must move in order to add value. We must engage our muscles and our mind in order to build a subassembly, grind a housing, load the cable, check a part, administer a medication, produce a proposal. Yes, we must move to add value. We must work. And that means that moving, that, <clears throat> I beg your pardon, and that means that motion is moving and not adding value. So work is the sixth building block of visual thinking. And I will have to complete the building blocks the next time, but I will tell you what they are. I'll remind you. So building block six is work. Building block seven, so important, is the value field. Building block eight is motion metrics. Yeah. This will be very interesting. I think it's very important to take our time and understand this methodology, which is a very mature one, because it has the ability to both teach a system of thinking and a system of transformation that is owned by your operators. It will be supported by you and soon will begin to describe for you the 12 management tasks that you're responsible for in order for your operators to, as it were, take the lead in this transformation. This is wonderful work. And operators operators rise to this occasion, find a new identity, and, and make a contribution that is so valuable. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for joining and listening in. I couldn't be happier. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth wishing you a splendid journey to whatever your destination might be, and hoping that workplace visuality is part of that road. Until the next time, let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.